Hey guys, what's going on? Thanks for checking out Heroes Home Base Podcast, episode 23. Hey, what's going on, guys? This is Rich. This is Rob. This is Mark. Fellas. 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 How we been doing? Great. So this episode is going to be a little bit different. We're going to kind of scrap all of our, you know, segments and stuff. And uh, we're going to basically highlight the interview conversation that we had with uh, Matthew Clickstein, the author of You Are Obsolete, uh, published by Aftershock Comics that we did at the Laughing Ogre, the, the live event that we did that Rob went to the store with. And man, Rob, what was it like recording with a mask on? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> my, God. Um, my grocery store girlfriend and I are closer than my wife and I are right now. <laughs> we spend a lot more intimate time together. Um, no, I, the, the ogre took really good care of me. Um, I told Gib it was uh, an honor to be on the other side of the green tablecloth. Uh, you know, he had a got a hero's home base uh name placard on the table and nice um <laughs> did you yeah, steal was really it? did good. you steal it <laughs> i thought about it but i i really had to pee so i left <laughs> um somebody's somebody using the facility so i'm like ah, i got to go so another thing that was unique about this episode was uh mark was actually traveling to uh, set up for another episode so he wasn't available to do the live event um so we had our number one fan subject line herb who was super excited to be a part of the interview process i thought he did a really good job yeah that that musician artist in him kind of came out mark did you want to kind of share with uh i know we talked a little bit uh about some of the new segments that you're going to be doing and posting on facebook and maybe kind of reviewing on the show because you were basically in the middle of doing that when we were doing that live event yeah so i had done some traveling in new jersey to a couple of comic book stores that we've talked about on the show um one was in wayne new jersey i went to go visit zap comics uh that we first heard about through Anthony Desiato's documentary, My Comic Shop Country. Yeah. And so I traveled to Wayne, New Jersey for the day and spent some time at Zat Comics and bought about 12 books. Nice. Including, nice. Yeah, yeah. And you'll hear all about, all about my review coming up from my, from my recent travels there. Bought about 12 books. And one of them included the, new, the latest Birds of Prey one-shot, which, which was pretty good. And you'll hear me review about that later. Okay. I also traveled to Giant Silent Bob's Secret Stash down in Red Bank, New Jersey. And I also got a chance to travel to a shared universe podcasting studio that's run by Mike and Ming from Comic Book Men that we've interviewed. So lots of great traveling, travel stories, and reviews that will be coming up in later episodes. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, that's why Mark wasn't a part of the live, live event and he won't be a part of the audio that uh, we're going to share here. So, uh, Without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and uh, share the interview of Matthew Clickstein. Uh, before we do that, Rob, did you want to kind of highlight any of the other things that you uh, that we could kind of bring to the forefront 
about uh, the interview before we started? Was there something? Yeah, um, one of the upcoming projects that he was a part of, uh, he was promoting at the event. So it looks like in collaboration with uh, Michael Bracco, B-R-A-C-C-O, uh, Matthew is coming out with another book, um, The Kids of Winnie Junior High Take Over the World. Um, so this is a famous rock band of uh, all of the members have special needs. Um, so looks like Matthew and Michael put their heads together and kind of created um, fictional adaptations of themselves, of the band members dealing with trials and tribulations of junior high. And it looks like you could get um, exclusive interview and free downloaded songs from the band when you purchase this book. So that was uh, something that's coming out in September of this year. Very cool. Um, yeah, he was super excited about it, super passionate about it. Um, but he does a lot of work and advocacy work as well uh, for folks with special needs, which is really special. Um, looks like I don't think there were any publication delays due to COVID. So I think it's September, 2020. looks like you can get it in hardcover for $12.99. Um, looks like you can get on, um, I believe it's Schiffer Publishing. That's S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R Publishing on Facebook. Their same handle on Instagram, Schiffer Books on Twitter. and uh, likewise, Schiffer Publishing on um, Pinterest, it looks like. I know that uh, the uh, organization that I wrote this down when we were interviewing him was LA Gold. He wasn't sure if it was .org or .com to where you could donate to uh, this this group of because they're kind of in a in a tough spot with obviously income coming in and stuff like that with the the pandemic and stuff like that, but. Uh, I know you're going to hear us talk a lot about uh, You Are Obsolete, uh, but just kind of like a highlight, it's a five-part um, comic story. This was Matthew's oh, first. Rich, Rich, hold on. Go ahead. You want me to provide a little bit more about LA Goal here? There's a sure. sentence here on that. So it says, a portion of the profits from the book will go to LA Goal. Okay. G-O-A-L. And that's a nonprofit in LA offering recreational, artistic, and employment opportunities to people with disabilities. So awesome. he was awesome. stoked that he could be part of a project that could uh, get back to um, a really important nonprofit that as he does say in the interview, they're, they're kind of struggling right now. Yeah. So just a quick highlight. You'll hear us talk about this a lot during the interview, but uh, you are obsolete, really good book, five issues. He, uh, when he was doing the signing, the trade had just come out really nice really nice book uh very me personally very very impressed with aftershock comics uh sounds mm -hmm. like they were the best fit for him they they seem to be pushing really really uh independent artists being able to collaborate and get their vision out there i was really impressed i was really impressed with aftershock pushing the live stream event and sharing it and it was like almost instantaneous so when gib put the put the live stream notice out on the, uh, the ogre Facebook page aftershock was pushing it. So nice. it's really good that the publisher supporting their, their art, yeah. their writer. So um, I highly recommend this book. Uh, I, I read it really, really quick. 
Um, it's it's a really good read. It's it's uh, it's not a it's not a typical superhero genre type of book that we're used to talking about and highlighting. Um, but it, it was re- very well done. The art is absolutely phenomenal in it. Um, it's just a good creepy suspense, really really good book. So um, I was actually getting some Michael Turner vibes off of the artist Evgeny, the artist. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, without further ado, we'll take you to the audio for this, and uh, hope you enjoy it. I'm good. I don't have too bad. All right, we are live. Mascots, ten pounds. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is Rob from Heroes Home Base Podcast. We are live at the Laughing Ogre in Columbus, Gibbs' uh, home base, and so we're here with uh, Matthew, which um, team, who uh, is just releasing the trade of you are obsolete. So they say. And I am Rich, and we have a guest guy on the podcast today. It is our number one fan, number one uh, commenter, per se. Subject yeah, like line. the only Su- fan. Subject line, Herb. <laughs> Herb is going to be so uh, Pleasure to be here. Yep. Herb with an H. Yes, sir. Herb, Herb with an H. H. A capital H. I get, I get it all, though. Herb, Herb. <laughs> yep. So uh, just a couple of, uh, I guess I would call it CV stuff. So Springfield, Confidential, Slime, the oral history of Nickelodeon's Golden Age. Probably we should keep it an oral history. And oral history. Thing. Yeah. Not the oral history. Not the oral history. An oral history. There you wink, go. Wink. <laughs> an oral history. Uh, selling Nostalgia. That was your most recent mm-hmm. novel. And then we've got your options. Correct. So we're, so for those attending the live stream, so he's going to be doing live signings. Um, so we'll probably be able to feed him questions and then as folks come up, we'll let him do that so he can engage with folks uh, logistically that come in the store to get uh, the trade signed. And you, uh, can you show us a, an example of the trade that, that they're going to be looking at? Do you have oh, any? You wanna... Sure. Oh. Look at that. Oh, she's glossy too. Yes. Like it's shiny. It's so yeah. shiny, shimmery. That's those teeth. We should totally we should like give out a prize if people know what that's from. Like what it what we're uh what we're uh doing a pastiche of. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> uh spoiler alert, Rich, you saw my note. See you reverse engineered the demo, right? Yeah. Uh oh, business. <laughs> uh, well thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the uh the full story. It's fantastic. Yeah. Did you read all five? I went through one night. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. It was fantastic. I think that's when I read it. Give me your stories. All right, Herb. Why don't you uh, Why don't you talk a little bit about your favorite part of the book? Uh, Well, I gosh, I got to tell you, there was there was a lot of parts that were uh, really really good in this. Um, Right off the get go, from the very beginning, I really got down with um, just the whole creepy clown smile face vibe. that you get from the very beginning of this um and that was with the cab driver and actually the in uh the, the woman who runs the motel um and again you know just the first one i think was probably my favorite out of all of them uh definitely with the, the cliffhanger at the very end like right when she the kids you know that's my favorite part so far how about you guys it was almost like you mentioned the creepy factor it was almost like i don't want to i don't want to associate the joker with that creepy joker suspense 
Yes. You're like, what is going on with these folks? Right. So it was, Absolutely. It was pretty cool. All right. We got a comment on Facebook from David Carr. He says, hi, Gib. Gib's somewhere running around the store. <laughs> Indeed. Rob, did you say what your favorite part of the book was? I did not. Um, I just really enjoyed kind of the, the Black Mirror vibe. Nice. Right. Yeah, I got the book. Okay, now we're too. Back. What, uh, one of the very first questions we usually ask folks when you're on our podcast mm-hmm. when did you first fall in love with comics, or was there something in particular that drew you to that genre or something like that? Um, actually, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, uh, if I'm going to be totally honest. I never was really into comics. Nice. <laughs> um, but I hung out at a lot of comic book stores because that's kind of where my people were. And I was a little young for records, so um, <laughs> at the comic book stores, and I've been saying this a lot lately, is I really see comic book stores as more than just about the product that you're buying there. It's a community hub, very much like a coffee yes. shop or you know record stores now that I've gotten more into music over the years like that. But um, so I, I would hang out at comic book shops even though I wasn't reading comics because that's just where my friends were and we would talk about The Simpsons and movies and science fiction and I did get into Magic the Gathering during the first sort of wave. Yes. That, that's yes. where the Magic the Gathering games were at the comic book shop. <laughs> right. And we just go there and, and hang out. It was, you know, it's where a lot of the skater kids hung. And, you know, that's that was our bar. It was our cheers was the comic book shop. Right. There, there were right. three or four of them in my area. And that's where I would go to hang out. So I wasn't even into comics. I was just into the comic book scene. And, of course, I learned a lot about what was going on in the comic scene just through osmosis because I was hearing people talk about it and I was seeing everything on the wall and so forth and so i understood what mouse was and killing joke and alan moore like i knew the names i knew these people i just wasn't actually sitting down and reading them um and then over the years as i got more into writing about pop culture history and some of the books that i've been doing the nonfiction work my journalism work i just became very interested in comic books as a subculture and again as a community and i kind of revisited it from that point of view so i sort of became a Margaret Mead or Stud Circle, if you will, the comic book scene. And I love reading books about Robert Crumb and Weirdo Magazine and Fantagraphics and the history of DC and Marvel and Bill Finger. And there's a fascinating yeah. world there to really get into. And a lot of this is stuff we're just learning about now about, hey, Bill Finger really helped right. the creator basically yeah. Batman. Yeah. We, you know, or how did you know Superman really come to pass? And just there's so much fascinating stuff to look into there. So I'm I'm much more interested in it as a, a community, as a culture, as a subculture. Um, this is my first series. You are obsolete. Uh, I was originally pitching it as a film. Uh, I do a lot of film and TV work. Would have been awesome. And uh, uh, I was getting some great feedback, but uh, a few of my friends who are in the comic book industry, they suggested this would make a great comic. And a few of them actually pushed me to aftershock. I talked to the folks over there. They loved my idea. I had a little three-page pitch. It was basically Lila, the main character of You Are Obsolete's confession at you know as, as one three-page story if you will sort of telling what happened from a very abstract uh, sort of general point of view and they loved it they actually had to send me comic book scripts so i could learn how to write a comic book script <laughs> but you know again i'd written film i'd written tv i'd written theater yeah so it, it's very comparable it, it was really like if you learn the guitar you can play the piano type of thing i mean right. I, there was some specifics with the vernacular and the language i had to learn but uh I wrote the first issue on spec. They loved it. They bought the whole series and we just went and did it. In fact, there was a moment where I said, oh, now I have to write all, four, all five of these damn things. <laughs> and I just I had to go and do it. But uh, yeah, so this is my first series and I'm learning, you know, now I'm learning a lot more about the comic book industry on the ground level, going to stores and 
doing things like this and doing interviews. And so it's not as, again, sort of abstract or cerebral. Now I'm really there and talking to fans and learning a lot and just kind of understanding how things work with the distributors and, you know, with the books themselves and reading through a lot of them when I'm at the stores and whatnot. So it's, it's, uh, it's like I, I'm diving right in. Dude, I was talking to Herb. Uh, uh, it was actually yesterday we were preparing for this, and uh, I was just telling him how awesome I think Aftershock really is because it it just has that uh, yeah. early early '90s image publisher yeah. feel, where it's really caters to somebody like you that has just an independent story that they're like, "Hey, I think this will be a good idea." It, I, yes. I, I love the layout of the books. I think it. I think uh, just. Even just having the bios at the end, man, yeah. and just like <laughs> well, tiny, in the and a genre. tiny little in the horrors and like the little solicits, man. Like I, I, I just love learning more about you, learning more about the artist, and I just think that uh, sometimes there's a disconnect in that, and sometimes in other in other publications. And I think it's, I think it's, it's it, it, it is truly creator driven. When when yeah. they say that, that's not just an empty maxim. And again, I, I've written books about early Nickelodeon. We have things like Nicktoons, especially Ren and Stimpy, and and Rugrats and whatnot, and these really unique shows like uh, Pete and Pete, and, and You Can't Do It on Television, and so forth. I mean, Nickelodeon really gave that car blanche, blanche to those showrunners, and I'm still friends with the people who created Sleet Your Shorts, or Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes. And, um, yes. you know, there was obviously yes. some drama behind the scenes in a lot of these situations, but the one thing everyone said is they really had almost total creative freedom yeah. to make those shows, and that's why they were so unique and special. Then I went on and did my book about The Simpsons, and it was exactly the same thing where they had total freedom, they, you know, no, no network interference. Even to this day, they're pretty much the only show anywhere where they can do whatever they want. And it's, it's one of the reasons why that show has been so successful and why it resonates so much. Um, so I think that the creator-driven aspect of Aftershock is similar to that and very important. And they, as you can see from the series, they allowed me to really go all out. I mean, I, I'll say it right now. I said this before. Issue four is a really weird <laughs> comic, um, and uh, you know, no, n not too much spoilers. But it's basically one long mushroom trip. It gets really philosophical. There's, yeah. uh, I, I named some names in there about social media stuff and whatnot. Yeah, it's sort of yes. get a chance to do some I, soapboxing. And I, I really, the whole time, I was dreading turning that trip in because I just assumed my editors were great, Mike Marks. And Christina Harrington, we're going to say, Matt, we're going to have to put the hold on this one. Like, you're going to need to rewrite this. Like, we just can't do this. It's too weird. It's too this, too that. And they loved it. In fact, Christina came in and said, oh, I love the mushroom trip idea. Let's let's mess with the lettering. Let's do this. Yeah. And I told Lauren, the colorist, to, to do more with the coloring. And I mean, they, they totally went with it. And I really thought they were going to tell me to rewrite the whole script. That's not how they do it there. They really push awesome. your vision. That's awesome. And every, yeah, this, I've, again, I've worked on so many different projects, books, movies, TV, working with Aftershock and doing Your Obsolete was, was the most fun and the most swift and easygoing creative experience I've, I've ever had, truly. Yeah. Fantastic. It, it was just so much fun to work with them. They really, they helped to support my vision rather than tell me why I can't do something. Right. Fit it into yeah. their box. And you know, when they, and they would give, they would give feedback. I mean, they weren't just totally you know, patronizing and yeah, do whatever you want. They would tell me like, you know what, Matt, especially since this is my first series, they were, they were good guys. Because, you know, comic book readers might want this. You might want to think about doing it like this. Christina came up with the title. It originally had a different title and she's the one who came up with You're Obsolete. She had some good reasons why. And I mean, so when they did give me feedback, it was almost always extremely helpful. Helpful and so positive. Oh, yeah. Really well. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I have to admit that issue four was probably my favorite. <laughs> Was your favorite? <laughs> Good. <laughs> so it worked, bro. It worked. Glad to yeah. hear it. More about the 
creative process of how you've done like your novels and your previous work compared to kind of doing like your first comic series? Like, was there anything you had to adapt? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, look, I, I've done so many different projects with so many different media. I've done theater work. I've done nonfiction books. I've done fiction books. Um, I'm starting to get into audio books. Um, I'm starting to get into other media like that. I've done podcast work. Um, so it's always completely different. Every individual situation with each individual company. I've worked with the biggest, like Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster. I've worked with the smallest. Um, I've worked with friends, you know, tiny little companies, just helping them out or doing something a little bit more sort of for fun. So I've done so many different kinds of projects. And it really is circumstantial. Um, I, again, I would say that um, working with Aftershock Zone, doing Your Obsolete was great because they had the resources, they had the the time, the knowledge, the ability, and the experience, and the talent. I mean, when you're working with the artists that they brought, they brought those artists on, Andy Clark and Evgeny and Lauren. They brought top artists on so that whenever I wanted to do anything, it was done, and usually immediately, it was very fast. It worked really, really well. When I'm working with these other companies, I mean, a book like Slimed in Oral History, Nickelodeon's Golden Age, or my Simpsons book, Springfield Confidential, even though I'm working with these top firms like Penguin or HarperCollins, right. things take two, three, four years. And a lot right. of it is lawyers and licensing and tracking yeah, oh yeah. it down and doing this and doing that. And, the good and stuff. Do we, can we get the rights for the artwork and can we do this and can we do that? And especially when you're talking about, you know, Fox and you're talking about Nickelodeon and Viacom. I mean, there, there's so many obstructions in the way of just running as fast as I can and that creative process. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a writer. That's what I do. I've been doing it since I was a kid. I wrote my first novel when I was 13. I wrote a more in high school just for fun. I wasn't even trying to publish them. It's just what I did. I wrote. Right. And so working with You Are Obsolete and Aftershock, it was the first time in a long time where I got to just sit down and write and create. I wasn't worrying about getting interviews or transcribing interviews or dealing with licensing or any of the other obstructions in the way of when you're working on these nonfiction books or I'm working on a documentary or whatever it is. It was just me coming up with my ideas and Aftershock was there to support it and work with these amazing artists who got what I needed and did it every time, you know, within a few days, usually. You know, so was your, great. was your flow like more seamless than mm-hmm. like barrier, barrier, barrier? That's, I mean, that, that's the way I would say it. That, that was the big difference was just how swift and seamless it was without sacrificing the quality. Again, they were there to say, I mean, we, we had our moments where we butted heads a little bit because um, that's what happens when you're collaborating is sure. everyone has their different ideas. But I would say 99% of the time, um, I agreed with with whatever creative criticism they did have, and it was always very helpful. And again, there were moments where I just said, "Wow, I wouldn't have thought of doing it that way." Thank you for coming up with that idea. So they they didn't just say, "Yeah, go do whatever you want," because that's also not any good. I don't want it to be sure. too yeah. seamless. You know, basically, you got to think about it as you're on an ice rink and you got your ice skates, and I want to be able to skate and have fun and go. But I mean, if there's no brakes on the skates, I can just fly right off right. the wall, and that's not going to be good either. <laughs> It was a perfect combination. And again, that comes from these are experienced people. These are people, you know, Mike and Christina, they came from DC and Marvel. And, you know, again, yeah. speaking of killing joke, I mean, Mike Marks was one of the editors on, on the deluxe version of that. I mean, yeah. so these are people who know what they're doing. Right. So they weren't just yeah, go, letting me go off and do whatever I want. They were there to, to hold me back and give some feedback and some thoughts and ideas. But for the most part, it was seamless. And, and that, it was just, it was, that was so much fun and really rewarding. And, something I, I don't normally get to experience when you're working in television or film or, or other kinds of, uh, of book work today, journalism, whatever it is, sure. you know? So Matt, are you, uh, 
are we are we going to get some more comics from you? I'll just start off with that. <laughs> I sure hope so. Obviously, right now it's extremely difficult. Um, you know, companies are are uh, you know dealing with a lot of of you know the results of the the COVID pandemic, unfortunately. And I'm sure I don't have to tell anybody just how devastating it's been, and uniquely so to the comic book industry, just because yes. of the way distribution's done and yes. the importance of having stores and doing events like this. One of the reasons I'm doing it. Um, so it, it, there's probably gonna be a little bit of hold on that, but I have a ton of different ideas. My Heck agent's yeah. been going around pitching some stuff. We're talking to all the companies and we're seeing what we can do, but it's a little, it's a little tough. I will say, um, I have a, a middle grade reader coming out in late awesome. September called the kids of Whitney junior high take over the world. Nice. It's based on an actual group that I've worked with for years called the kids of Whitney high group of adults with yes. developmental disabilities in a rock band. They're in the movie, the ringer with Johnny Knoxville and Catherine Hagel that the Frelly's produced. They, been a few other things. Um, That's people crazy. Like Dr. Demento, Weird Al, and others are big fans. There's Mike Patton from Faith No More, and Mr. Bungle took them on tour. Jackson Brown helped them with one of their albums. So they're kind of a musician's music, sort of Daniel Johnson or Wesley Willis, that style. But uh, nice. we're doing that book. It's coming out late September. And the artwork is by a comic book creator named Mikey Bracco, who's okay. based out of Baltimore. And uh, the artwork is just fantastic. Um, and though it's for middle grade readers, six to twelve, I think parents and sure. older brothers and I'll read it. teachers will really like it a lot too. Yeah. Heck yeah, Herb, you're the musician. Oh, yeah, Do you? I know you were looking into that. What? You got any thoughts on that? Well, no, I just think it's a fantastic thing that you would do something like that, that kind of uh, community outreach and uh, work for, you know, people who need that kind of a thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. And yeah, it, I will say one much more character. people watching this right now, if they do want to help out a little bit more, part of the profits go to an organization in Los Angeles that's been around for 50 years wow. called LA Goal. And okay. uh, they've worked with the kids in the past. They work with people with disabilities with all different kinds of things, recreational, vocational, educational they've been actually hit very hard by this uh, pandemic so oh, i'm sure if uh, anyone's geez. watching this yeah. if you want to help and they do care please reach out to la goal i think it's just lagoal.com or lagoal.org and okay. you know, they can get all the help they can get not just money but if people want to volunteer help out if they're in the area out there in los angeles or you know obviously i would imagine a lot of people watching this are going to be in this area but you know, whatever, whatever people can do to help out right now, they actually could really, really use it. Like I said, they've been around for 50 years and this is, this has been a very difficult time for them. So uh, that book again comes out at the end of September. The kids of Whitney Junior High take over the world. So that'll be a project. I have a few other things coming out as well, but that's the one I'm really excited about. We're hoping it'll yeah. become a series. We're talking with some uh, companies about maybe making an animated series as well teach young people about people with disabilities and kind of how to interact with them a little more comfortably. And because I'm working with the kids that wouldn't hide themselves, I really was bringing in a lot of their experiences on a personal level. There's an interview at the end with one of the kids that wouldn't hide members talking about representation, how important that is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're hoping in addition to it being a fun, entertaining read for young people that it'll, you know, be educational, inspirational as well. So we'll see what happens. Doing the so Lord's work. Downloadable. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, when you when you get the book, you can download a couple of their songs. You, you can scan the back cover and you can download a few of their songs uh, to hear more of that. And uh, we also, we did a documentary about them many years ago that we're actually re-tweaking right now. And we're going to be showing again when the book comes out. We're going to have a few events and things like that. It, obviously, <laughs> pending uh, shutdowns or whatever. Um, but, but luckily, the book doesn't come out till the end of September. So we'll probably be doing that in October, November. And in fact, I'm actually speaking with an organization in Ohio, uh, Art Impossible which okay. is great, and uh, we're, we're going to be hopefully working with them to do some things there, maybe bring the kids who would tie out so they can play. We'll show the documentary. Heck yeah. So definitely great. on the lookout for that, yeah, because that, and that would be in Ohio, and just, I think, 
an hour or two north of us here. So that, that's something that we're hoping we can do in November. Sweet. Hopefully. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It would be really cool, actually. They're great. They're a great band. <laughs> well, so it's quite a Facebook feed. What's Any that? questions there? Nope, not yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Easy breezy. <laughs> All right. I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned it really, really quick. I just want to know if you could share a little bit about your pitch to Aftershock. What was, what, what was all in that pitch for the book? Um, so <laughs> funny story. Uh, I was very drunk. Be it Coleridge or whatever, or Bukowski or Hunter Thompson. Um, no, I uh, I was with a different literary agency at that time, and uh, they worked with me on my Simpsons book and a book about nerd culture, actually, that ended up coming out in China, and that my podcast, Nerds, uh, is based on. Um, and we just, we got a memo from one of the film department people that said, here's some ideas if any of the authors want to try to follow up on, these could probably be sold as a film later. And they were extremely vague, abstract concepts. One of them was a video game that kills people, which, you know, we've seen that a million times before. Sure. But I've been thinking about wanting like to do app. something about social media and devices and new media and, uh, you know, a lot of things that I'm very engaged in uh, on, on different levels, uh, namely media and whatnot, that a lot of my friends are. Um, and I just wanted to talk about it more. Um, and I was trying to come up with thoughts and ideas, and then it sort of snapped with the video game that kills people. And yeah, I was with a buddy of mine who's an animator in Boulder, Colorado, when I was living there. We started talking about it. The bartenders started getting into it with us. Some of the other people who were there started talking with us. And we were all just kind of crowdsourcing like the basic idea on how it works. Well, if this becomes a film, I'm going to have to make you all associate producers. <laughs> and then I just went home and sat down and Lila's uh, three-page confession just poured out of me. It was really one of those moments. You know, any any writer, artist, or musician who gets that, you know, spark of, of inspiration. That inspiration. Yeah. He just yep. sat down. It just came out of me. She took over my body for, you know, an hour. And I just sat down and wrote this thing out and sat down and said, hey, this is pretty good. And it was in her first person. Um, I really didn't think too specifically about her name or who she was or anything like that. It just came out of me. She just spoke to me. And bam, there it was, this three-page confession. And it was basically the beginning, middle, and end of the story on a general level. And that's that's what I pitched around as a film to some people I know. People were giving me great feedback. But uh, after a few months, you know, there wasn't anything solid happening. And that's when a few of my comic book friends that I sent to said, you know, this would make a great comic. You should talk to, you know, this company, that company. A few people kept pushing me to Aftershock. And then once I got into Aftershock, it actually went very fast. They loved the confession. I mean, there it was. They even used a lot of that for some marketing stuff and whatnot. I mean, that was, I think, a big part of it was it was already so drawn out in that three-page confession, which really we used as the structure for the five-part series. The whole series, for those that don't know, is basically one long confession yeah. of Lila. She's typing at her computer the whole time, and so she's telling you what happened. And that's all based on that original three-page confession. So that, that's where it all came from. And in fact, even though I had a lot of background in writing, film, television, theater, journalism, books, whatever, you know, Mike and the people at Aftershock said, you know, we need to see text script first just to make sure you can write a, a comic book because you've never right. done one before. And luckily, after they gave me some samples, they really loved my spec and uh, we went from there. So that, that was kind of the process. Nice. Nice. What were some of the uh, parts of the bar conversation that people <laughs> were kind of, you were crowdsourcing, like was right. pop culture stuff and yeah, yeah. I hate Facebook, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> 
yeah, I think everybody hates Facebook, but um, <laughs> yes, you know, it's actually <laughs> the social media plague. A lot of angels envy, which is oh, like yeah. a, a yes. uh, aged in pork wine barrels. I frequently um, drink that. Yeah, <laughs> angels envy is great. So it really, uh, I, I was quite a, a bibulous experience and very discombobulated. And my friend, who's an animator, uh, is, a, is a hard drinking man and uh, talks and looks a bit like an old pirate hippie. Really <laughs> grateful dad. So. I remember the experience a little bit more than the specifics. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, we were just kind of talking about how, like, we didn't, we knew we didn't want a video game, and then it came up with the idea of an app, and, and we started talking about it being on an island, and we started talking about how the would the app work. It, it was, and I'm not just saying this to try to save face or anything. Like, it was just kind of bullet points of okay, it's an app, and it's for children, and we started talking about you know uh, movies that were similar, like Logan's Run and Children of the Right. We were sort yes. of just gibbering and jabbering yes. for about All two those. hours while we were drinking. Yep. Yeah. So then, and then, yeah, I think it was just, I was in, and that's one of the reasons, it was the second time I lived in Boulder, Colorado. I love Boulder. Um, it's a very creative town. There's a lot of filmmakers there, a lot of musicians, obviously, a lot of artists, a lot of writers, a lot of tech people who are doing some innovative things, a lot of foodie people doing some innovative things. So right. it's just, it's a very inspirational place. And a lot of my friends are in the arts and whatnot as well. There I am with this animator guy. He used to work with Spike and Mike's and Twisted Festival and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so it was more of just I was immersed in this creative lagoon for about two hours. Doing something <laughs> and then I went home and bam, yeah. It would have been like being at a music festival or jamming with a bunch of friends. And then going home and just writing a song and saying, like, I sat back. And I said, okay, I got something here. Because I, I write so much and I work on so many different projects. And obviously, 90% of them go nowhere. I sat down and I said, I think something's going to happen with this. This is a good idea. I love this character. I love the voice. Um, you know, not to give too much away. And this might be one of your later questions. But one of the things I like about it being a confessional through the whole series is I play with the unreliable narrator trope. You start to realize that Lila, the main character, even though she's telling you the story, and even though she's this professional journalist, and even though... She seems very smart and sophisticated and whatnot. She's got a lot of problems. Yes, you know? the yeah. the drinking. Yeah, you can't. She even says, you know, there's there's scenes where I had the artist like have her, you know, break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. Basically, and there's moments where she says things like, "I'm not an angel. I never said I was." She obviously had some issues with drinking and other substance abuse and some other problems. And you know, she hints at some things. She gets a little bit more specific at others. So you, you start to wonder, like, wait a second, who's in charge here? And I think it adds a lot to the discomfort and to the sense of chaos and anarchy yes. that I really want to play with. Just because she's a professional journalist, just because she's a smart young woman who's strong and independent and whatnot, doesn't mean that she doesn't have her problems. And, like, you don't necessarily know if you should trust everything she's saying. And is she yeah. the good guy? Is she the bad guy? So as the, as the series goes, I start to kind of play with the idea of the confessional, the idea of the story. That comes from, you know, the simplest one will be some like American Psycho or, yeah. or uh, a lot of other great books or, or movies where they do the same kind of thing. I just really wanted to play with the notion of just because she's telling the story doesn't mean you can trust everything she says or that she's the hero necessarily. Right. I, sure. I, I just wanted to play with. One yeah, of you touched, go ahead, Herb. Go ahead. You, you touched on a concept uh, about with her, um, you know, basically destroying her career overnight with, with basically saying the wrong thing, you know, with her platform. Yeah. And I think that that is such a reflection of where we're at today. Absolutely. Know? 
Yeah. Uh, I think you definitely hit a big spot on that. And then another yeah. one, I, another thing I wanted to ask you about was I had a bit of an edu- educational moment here during this comic. Uh, <laughs> I saw a uh, Procrustean bed. Yes. Um, is am I, am I saying that correctly? First off, I, I'm pretty sure it's Procrustean. Procrustean. Yeah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, now that being a you know w- with the parallax <laughs> view. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> I learned something on that. I was <laughs> I had to look it up myself. I, was, I never saw the word. Could, in, no. a, uh, in a comic book either, I'm going to imagine. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so I, th- those, those, are, those are two great, great questions, comments, and they actually go together really well. So, um, uh, yeah, that was another aspect of why I wanted her to be a very smart and educated journalist. And in fact, a lot of, again, uh, issue four, which is a mushroom trip that allowed me to kind of play with her flashbacks and whatnot. She's reflecting on a lot. As you do, you become very introspective on mushroom, or so I've heard. Um, uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> I, uh, so she, it shows that she what she really educated herself as a young girl, and that she was she became obsessed with trying to seek out the truth, and she was reading a lot of books and she was researching a lot. So I felt it worked organically to have her say things like Procrustean bed or Kadavika Husam or discuss Zizek or Hannah Arendt or banality of evil. I mean, I was filling in all these extremely um, you know hardcore philosophical concepts and whatnot both sure. because I thought that worked for her and the story, but also, yeah, a little bit of, let's have a little bit of education in here and hopefully people will look this stuff up or look up these yes. things or whatever, look up these books. It worked. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. So and I, I just, I, and I thought that that would make it more real and really connect the story to reality. Margaret Atwood said when she was working on The Handmaid's Tale that she wanted to make sure every single thing in that had to actually happen. So that's all based on actual events so that she could later say, hey, if you think I'm being really exaggerative here, or this is hyperbole, or I'm out to lunch, like, these things all happen. And that there was a similar kind of deal with the fantastic movie Network that Patty Chayefsky wrote. Like, a lot of that was based on his actual experiences. And certainly back in the early 70s when it came out, or even now, they're talking about network shares, and they're talking about demographics and all these, you know, insider terminology that a regular person wouldn't necessarily know, especially in the early 70s. But that was very important to make the story that much more realistic, be it Netflix, yes. Handmaid's Tale, or I hope you are obsolete. To go back to what you were talking about before, Herb, um, yeah, you know, I know that some people uh, were a little confused by what Lila did or said to get herself canceled or disgraced or in trouble. I wanted that to be intentional for two reasons. Yeah, okay. Is I wanted to be a sense of, you know, it, it doesn't even matter. Like, she right. did something, boom, done. Yep. It doesn't even it's matter. It's been done. Yep. Yeah. I wanted to keep it general. I wanted to keep it abstract. So that was actually intentional. It's not like I forgot to go back to it or whatever. It was just, I wanted to be that she was disgraced, she canceled, the end moving on um, to keep it more like it could be anything. The other is, I'll be honest, there's a lot of little Easter eggs or things in the story that I'm hoping if it ever were to become a longer series or a film or something like that, or, or a TV series, maybe even that yes, we can maybe many go series back to it. So it could be a prequel or something. Right. Yeah. Hey, what the yeah. heck? Let's franchise. You know, hey, I'm, I'm a commercial guy as much as anybody else. So that was part of it too. But really it was about, I wanted to make the point that it doesn't even matter what she said or did. And, you know, that's both, um, that, that kept it more general, but also I think what's scary about it. Like it could be anything, you know, yes. you know that's be the case. Yeah. So arbitrary, who gets canceled or who doesn't or, or whatever it might be. And so that, that I, was, I did that intentionally. I didn't want to say what it was. I think what Herb's question reminded me of, and you, you definitely answered some of it, the work is very relevant yeah. today. So we've got themes of the Quentin culture, you've got the themes of 
technology, the jury's still out. You right. know, we can't really look at like how does social media or, you know, kind of everybody's on this grand stage at all times and there there's so much exposure. We don't really know what that does to people, but it was just like I got a very black mirror. Yep. Yes. Like, <laughs> So I definitely can think it would make a good Black Mirror episode. Oh, oh heck absolutely. Yeah. It's a great Twilight Zone concept, too. You know, yeah, Black yeah, Mirror, yeah. any of that. And you mentioned uh, Children of the Corn. And, I, and it was so funny. You actually mentioned the reference of Children or not the Children of the uh, Wicker Man. Wicker Man. Yeah. And yes. uh, I just remember thinking about like two or three pages before that. I'm like, gosh, this is. This is kind of similar to Wicker Man. <laughs> I kept thinking the same thing. So I did like how you even put your own <laughs> yeah, reference, I call like myself inspirations out, you know? on and, it. And you wrote it in. <laughs> and again, part of it is I want people to check that flick out. It's an awesome movie. And, <laughs> and the old one, not the new one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although, let's be honest, the new one has its guilty pleasure moments. I mean, everything sure. with Nicolas Cage you know, has become its yeah. own series of memes and whatnot, too. I mean, oh, yeah. Whole, uh, so, but if you want to actually watch a movie for real, you know, like the new one is fun to, you know, maybe a drinking game, but the original Wicker Man is something very special. And uh, I've, I've always loved it. For a long time, it was my favorite movie. I used to watch it over and over and over again. Beautiful film. It's very different than what people would normally think. If you've never seen The Wicker Man before, you are in for a treat. There's yeah. musical sequences, and it's, it's, it's weird. very light and airy and surreal. That's one of the things I really like about a lot of the horror and sci-fi of the '70s. Is another example for me would be Stepford Wives, which they also remade into it. Just that there's nothing good quality in the new one. I'm sorry. I love Frank Oz. I love a lot of the actors in that movie, but that movie is awful. Um, but the original Stepford Wives is a similar kind of thing. It 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 feels very light and airy, and it gives it this kind of dreamlike sensibility to it. Um, that I think a lot of that goes back to movies like uh, Carnival of Souls, which is all during the day and it's very light out. Or, or a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes, as you said, that sometimes the scariest Twilight Zone episodes are the ones that are very much in the light. You know? Yes. And everything seems kind of dreamlike and nice. It's you know, they play with that really well, even in the original Nightmare on Elm Street at the end, you know, that end sequence where yep. everything seems happy and nice. And then boom, when, you know, yep. when the yep. car, when the, when the convertible comes up and then she gets over the door. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that really works. And, and the la, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons we love Evil Dead 1. I mean, you know, the girl sitting there like, ah, I'm gonna get you. like it's, there's a playfulness to it that makes it so much more scary and weird than just like shadows in the dark or jump scares or a monster. It's more this strange look or, you know. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of movies that are doing that right now. No. I think Midsummer did it really well. Um, I think that there was a movie called It Follows, which yes. had its problems script-wise, but I love the way that It Follows. I loved it. I love, it. I love, I love that movie. Of it Follows. Yeah, again, yep. the music and the way it was shot and how much of it's done during the day and, and just kind of like, there's a little like weird thing in the background, you know, it's, you know, another example that would just be like David Lynch, obviously, Twin Peaks and whatnot, like the weirdness more than the scariness, something yes. that's uncomfortable or creepy rather yep. than, you know, just straight up horror. That's the kind of... Well, I always found that it's the, it's the unknowing, the things that right. you don't know, the things that you don't see that make right. it that much better and that much more exciting. Because I always find that a horror movie is always ruined pretty much by the time you actually meet right, exactly. the antagonist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And they're doing yeah. that so much now. That, that even goes back to what I was saying about you don't know what it is that Lila did. Like, a, a great example is I, I love the first two-thirds of Babadook. 
I thought that that movie was great. But then when you actually see the Babadook and they kind of have this weird explanation yep. about who, what the Babadook actually is, there was a moment where I'm like, oh man, don't do that. Don't explain right. it. It's like, yep. the Star Wars is like, we don't want to know what the Force is. Like, don't do that. <laughs> like, <part> <laughs> is that it is this kind of abstract, strange, magical thing. And when you explain it too much, it takes away that magic. It's the same thing of, you know, the, the story of, of, of Charlie Chaplin not wanting the tramp to speak. As soon as the yeah. tramp speaks, it ruins it. And I think it's the same thing with horror. I love the ending of the original Halloween for that, for that reason. I mean, that's yeah. probably one of the first big times where it's like, where is, you know, where, where, where is he at the end? And you don't know where he is. And is he still there or whatever? Then it cuts the credits. I mean, Don mm-hmm. Carpenter really nailed it with that. And, I, you know, that uncertainty, it's that unpredictability that I think is so important. And again, why we love people like David Lynch, for example, that's what he's all about is you can watch a ton of his movies, have no idea what's going on, and you still love it. You know? Right. You watch it over and over again, you're still like, what the heck's even happening here? But that's part of what makes it so special. One of the things I really liked was, and you kind of made the point with, you didn't tell what actually what she did, mm-hmm. and I, I really appreciate these stories like that where it's more real life. Right. I'm I'm not going to get to know everything. Right. But also, I have to do some work as the yep. reader <laughs> to kind of, okay, how is this actually impacting me? Versus, you know, we're so saturated with, I don't know, the teens are saturated with so much stuff every second of every day, and it's just like actually be able to stop and actually, okay engage with the story on a more deep level i think is something that's just missing you don't you don't always get the answers and what's right. funny to me is what even when i was a kid i used to love writing and telling stories like this and even some of my teachers you know i was seven eight nine years old and arguing with them about this too and i remember even as a kid obviously a little bit older but i would say things like why did romeo and juliet's families hate each other that never comes up we yeah. don't know why the montagues and the capulets hate each other yeah. And does it matter? And again, it makes it more like it could be anything. And that helps it be more relatable also because we all have senses of people that we might not like for some weird reason or that our parents felt like now we have to not like, you know, like that's what the idea of hatred or intolerance is about a lot of times. There's not a specific mm-hmm. reason. And so, you know, I was, I, that's the easy one is like, why do the Capulets and the Montagues hate each other? And it's one of the like greatest, most beloved, most well-known stories of all time. We don't know why their families hate each other. Never once comes up. Right. Ever. And yeah. so, you know, I think that that's important. Um, you know, just to, to wrap this part off, I know I can ramble a little bit, but I've been I love it. a lot of Keep it going. So we're doing it. Love it. Stories. He's the king of new realism. He was coming out at the same time as uh, Toby Wolf and people like that. And, uh, uh, you know, Raymond Carver's short stories are all like, they kind of come in late and they leave early. Like, you know, you, there's just suddenly mid conversation, mid something's happening, a little slice of life moment, and then it just sort of ends when somebody like goes not you know open the door or whatever it is. And you know, part of what I love about Carver's stories, aside from he's just an incredible writer, uh, or was an incredible writer, but I love how the stories kind of just start and end, and boom, it's just a little slice of life, and it just it does. It makes it more relatable, it makes it more realistic. And it's like you're peeking in on something and then you're pulling away and that's that's all you get. And it keeps you thinking about it. And as you just said, man, I agree. It makes you work a little bit more. It's more, it's, it becomes interactive. You start thinking about your own life. You start, mm. you know, what is it that Lila did and you were obsolete? You start thinking about things that you've maybe said or done or friends have said and done that, you know, maybe gotten you in trouble in the past or whatever. It, it, it creates a certain sense of interaction with the reader. And I and think that that's really night. important. 
even if I alienate some readers who are like, I don't understand what you do. This doesn't make sense. This guy screwed up. Why did he say what happened? You know, which is a criticism I've gotten on other works because it's just something that I do a lot. And, you know, oh, well, not everyone's going to like everything. But what I, I just really like, I like, hold on. So I liked it that uh, you didn't know, but then you were just, you could tell she was ruined as a person in her own mind mm -hmm. and you could just see the downfall and you're like if you really really wanted to know just listen to her tell the confessional like you could tell right. that she's living a totally different way or dealing with different things throughout her mind she's she obviously a very broken person correct it really, yep. it really broke her yeah and uh you know it's something that a lot of people don't think yeah. about when those experiences happen is is is, is it can be pretty terrible um, going back to Alan Moore, uh, in an interview that I read with him many years ago, he said that, uh, you know, back in the 1500s or 1600s or whatever, uh, witches would put a curse on you and your, your cows when, you know, would give sour milk or whatever, or your crops wouldn't grow or something like that. Um, uh, sorry. um, but a bard a bard like the, the like local storyteller or whatnot he would mm -hmm. put a satire on you yeah and that is something that would ruin your reputation and follow you through death forevermore that would be your legacy that so it was worse social media by a bard than <laughs> it would put a satire on you than a curse from a witch because a witch would just <laughs> threw up your thing like for your farm but a bard and a satire your reputation's ruined forevermore i think wow could you just leave if, if, Okay, someone, someone's here. I gotta, gotta play the game a little bit. Oh, okay, fine, that fine, sure. <laughs> One of the things I really like is you're doing some work, but you're also reading it within a comic form. So, like the art form of the short story, the illustrated work, the thing that I really love about comics, because that again we've shared before, comics is what got rich in me reading for real. So you still have that short story, but also kind of the work of a, a novel or a sophisticated piece of literature, which I think, of course you get it in other comic stories, but I think it was definitely unique to this work. I enjoyed the actual hunting and doing the research, like you said, Herb, like you're like, I don't know what this is. Like, I haven't right. done that in a long time. Or if I'm doing the research, it's because I'm going back to find a different story arc that I'm like, how does this connect it to this? But like... Yeah, I like doing the, the research and, and just the vague not knowing. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. I know it's not an original concept, but it works and I like it. I like it a lot. Well, if you think about it though, like well, today, it's a combination. Yeah. Today with technology, you can get a lot more answers than you could before. But also, we're, it's like it drives people because they want to know the answer. And it's like, that's actually not real life. <laughs> like, well, also, there's, <laughs> there's obviously a lot more misinformation too. Absolutely. Yes. And it's harder to know what's real or what's not. That's what made, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they were creating Google so successful was they figured out early on that the future was going to be curation right. of information, organizing of information. And of course, their, you know, unwittingly ironic motto of don't be evil turned out to not really be the case, um, <clears throat> which is a whole other thing. But, uh, you know, what's I think interesting for me there, and these are themes I also deal with a lot here obsolete is Aldous Huxley really disagreed with George Orwell about the dystopian future, so to speak. Huxley felt, who wrote, of course, Grave New World and others like that, to Orwell's 1984, Huxley said, uh, 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 the future is not going to be censorship. The future is going to be super saturation of information. Yeah. They're, it's not, they're not going to hold back information. They're going to give us so much information that we're not going to know what's real, what's not real. 
it's going to pummel our brain. It's going to hit us back, hit us back. We're not going to know what, what's going on. It's going to be too much information. He was writing about this in the thirties and forties and Huxley actually, he, he, he wrote other books and wrote essays and such about this. He talked about the fact that, you know, there was so much radio now and so many newspapers. And I mean, he was following up on this in the earliest days of media permeation and the proliferation of media. Um, so he was saying, no, the future is not censorship. The future is super saturation of information. And we know who was right there. Wow. So, what a prediction. You know, Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre. What else do you guys have? I was going to say that uh, you, you spoke about your film and uh, your writing and stuff like that. I just want to kind of bring it back to the graphic novel format. Like I, I've, I've read about uh, directors, you know, getting bogged down when they have a large project, they're working on a movie for years and years and actors are getting bogged down. But then when they hear the music or they see it all come together, it's like a whole renewed, whole renewed love for what they've been doing and it's paying off. What was like your reaction when you got your first little bit of artwork and you're like, oh, it was, this could have been better than what I thought. Yeah, it was, it really was, it was euphoric. Um, it, uh, it was a relief. It really was. I mean, I'd been pitching the film idea around for not quite a year probably, but definitely a few months. And like I said, it just felt like something that I knew would happen in some way or another. And I originally hadn't even thought about it as a comic book or a graphic novel. So to actually see it realized, to see it materialize in front of me, and in such a gorgeous way. I mean, even Evgeny's first original black and white, you know, pencil sketches. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely had that moment of just this electric charge went right up my spine. And I said, A, it's so great to see it. B, I can't believe he basically took these ideas from my head and put it down on paper. It wasn't just that it was beautiful. It wasn't just that it was so well done and the perspectives are great and everything. It fit so well. It was exactly what I wanted. Um, and I was quite specific in my scripts. I mean, I really made it clear. And I would, you know, when I did fight a little bit or butt heads, there was a lot of, I mean, I worked on those smiles with them. That was probably the biggest yeah. one. Yeah, my favorite part. It's actually come up a lot in reviews that people talk about the, the creepy smiles of the adults. I really wanted that done well. That was the one thing that we had to go over and go over because originally it looked a little too malevolent, like they were doing something wrong, and then it was too smiley, like they were actually happy. And I, I, it, that was actually very difficult to get that done right. And I, I started feeling bad because, again, it was my first series. I didn't know if I was being too persnickety and too meticulous and, like, kind of pissing them off. But I just felt it had to be done right. And it's come up in a lot of reviews that people talk specifically about those smiles. So I'm glad that I did it right. It definitely and you know what? I'll, I'll throw is, it out there. Just whoever's yeah. watching this. The answer turned out to be I used a little bit of screenshots from my great Twilight Zone episode. It's a good life, which obviously has a lot of inspiration on this. But a little kid who you know, sends people off to the cornfield. Um, but uh, really what it came from is uh, Margot Robbie's smile that she would do in the movie I Am Tanya, the Tanya Harding movie. Oh, that okay. kind of painful okay. yeah. smile that she had. I, that, that, when I saw that again, I was like, yeah, that's the smile I want. So you can actually, if you want to do some uh, reverse engineering there, you'll see the smile very similar to Margot Robbie's smile with Tanya Harding in the Tanya Harding movie. Another film I highly recommend, by the way. I think I, Tanya is one of the great movies the last 10 years. Nice. A little off topic, but still. No. <laughs> Give credit for credit, too. It's a great film. Absolutely. That was one of the first things we talked about was the, was the smiles. Was yeah. the smiles. I mean, it's, it's I, I mean I'm, just, I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. I did it because, yeah, yeah it, it, I, I honestly felt bad that I was being just too, 
too micromanaging or something, but I just, that was one. No, you did the right thing. Yeah. 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 So, and to to everybody's credit, they, they, they went with it. Nobody was like, I don't know, Matt, come on. Why do we need to care about this? And they they (laughs) understood that it was really important to do it right. It was just a matter of me having to articulate it best. And then when I start sent them the stuff, yeah, from that Twilight 10 episode or from Itanya, the Itanya one was once I sent that, Evgeny got it completely. That nice. Was, that was that turned out to be the answer. <laughs> so it comes from weird places you wouldn't expect. A movie about Tanya Harding. So, hey, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yep. Kind of a higher level question about the book. So, how would you sell this? Like, what what would you like to kind of say to promote it to people that may want to check it out? Like, oh, is this just another? Oh, did they just put? Black mirror into a comic book form, or what is it? It's not so bad. I would go with it. You know, it's funny you say it like that. And uh, all the questions you guys are asking are really good. They're a little bit more complex and nuanced. I like. Um, Yeah, we've been saying it's children in the corn with cell phones, which I think (laughs) on one level is kind of right. Here's the problem: we always talk about children of the corn, and I think we all need to sort of come to terms with the fact that it's. Kind of a crappy film. <laughs> yes. Oh, so I'm a little sure. embarrassed to say it like that. Anyone who's actually seen the movie recently or, or, or who remembers it really well, it's not a very good movie. Doesn't stand um, the test so of time. It's just that's as soon as you say Children of Corn, even people have never seen it, they kind of know what you're talking about. It's a little bit more, it's less obscure than, say, Logan's Run or Soylent Green or even some of the other movies or books that we've been talking about. Um, so it's just, it's an easy signifier where people immediately go, oh, I know what you mean by that. Um, you know, so if I have to like say, say what the book's about in 10 words or less, because as we've been talking about this whole entire time, and I hope I'm not, again, pushing anybody away who's going to say, oh, this book sounds way too complex and complicated. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and I did insert, obviously, if you want to call it messaging or whatever, talking about some of the relevance of media and technology. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's still a pulp, com- very commercial, very simple, children born with cell phones idea. I mean, I purposely, that's why I referenced The Wicker Man or David Cronenberg, whatever. I'm basically saying like, hey, I know that this is still just this like fun, goofy, sci-fi, horror, you know, 70s, 80s film knockoff, even though we're talking about all these, you know, more hardcore philosophical concepts and whatnot. So I really wanted to play with that. But very similar to how a lot of the great sci-fi and horror of the 70s and 80s did the same thing. I mean, we could have had a similar you have a three-hour, ten-hour conversation about John Carpenter's They Live, for example. Um, or again, Cronenberg's Videodrome, which is just my favorite film of his. Or a movie like uh, Jake, the original Jacob Ladder, even Wicker, Wicker Man itself, which is deals a lot with religion and philosophy and so forth. But at the end of the day, Wicker Man is about, you know, a, a constable who goes to an island and, you know, is investigating a murder. And, uh, you know, They Live is Roddy Ryder Cop, Roddy Roddy, Roddy Piper, you know, fighting, you know, these alien type things, so to speak. And there's obviously so much more to it than that. So that's really what I wanted to try to achieve is a simple story, a simple idea. But when you actually sit down to read it, you are getting a lot more from it than that. And it's making you think about your life. It's making you think about topical issues. And I think that's why we still talk today about the Twilight Zone, why we still talk today about Cronenberg and Carpenter and so forth and those films from 30, 40, 50 years ago now. Um, because they have so much relevance to what's going on. And if I have even a little bit of that and you are obsolete, I'm not you know, trying to put myself in that lead, but if I have even a little bit of that and you are obsolete, I, I did my job. So 
I well, think, dude, I think you're, uh, really, <laughs> you're really relating to like, let's even just bring it to like modern, like right now with COVID and people being quarantined. Mm-hmm. And I have, yep. I have two little kids yeah. and I feel like there's some times where, uh, should we pause? Let's pause. Go for it. Yep. Don't lose that question, bro. I won't. I got it. One of the other things I really do like about this is the, uh, the feeling of isolation that you get. Um, just, it really, really adds to the tone of how creepy it is. Again, her feeling alone. She already feels rejected by society. You know, she's going through these drinking problems and because of all the stress and everything else and, and the whole mortality overtone on it again, he said he doesn't want to go. He doesn't, he wasn't intending for all those heavy, you know, ideas, but uh, I definitely, you, it, it is a very, very strong overarching tone throughout the entire series. Yes. So I hate to even say it. Like when we were talking about this book and we were trying to find like our references and I know he just said children of the corn, but did we, did we talk about the village of the damned? Like once we came to that reference, I was like, that's village of the damned, man. That's where I would pull my, ins- my, uh, my reference from, especially the, uh, the cover, the bleached blonde hair, like. Yeah, absolutely. One of the, one of the uh, stories that comes to mind that we haven't mentioned yet is Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. With all these kids and having a leader like that. Yeah, right. I don't know if you like, told that email, what happens in isolation when they run the show, right? Mm-hmm. When the nuts run the nut house. Yep. My my personal like like sell would be Village of the Dams meets Lord of the Flies meets Twilight Zone meets Black Because I think Black Mirror yes. is just so relevant for folks that don't know any of those other stories. Or maybe, you know, I don't watch anything that's not on Netflix. You can you can write a right. Right. So So are there a lot of people there? The stores is hopping. Yeah. Good, good, good Just uh, some people, few folks coming in to uh, get the signing done. How are you doing with your mask on there? Um, my, my mask is very tight. This is my grocery store girlfriend, as I like to say. We are very close. We are too close. It's, uh, Gibbs taking good care of me. I got the back room tour and uh, what is it? I've got the back room tour. Backroom, backroom tour. Um, he's taking with, good care of me with all the artwork on the wall. <laughs> yes, and I was like, kind of sad that that's not drywall, right? That has to stay. So, like, I'm taking this with me. <laughs> it is funny that he talks about the about the smiles being the first thing that came up with the reviews and stuff like that. I again, that's the first thing that drew me in on this on this whole thing. Um, just all these uh, the stories with the uh, the technology and the kids not talking to each other when they're in the same room, yeah. texting each oh, other yeah. that way because it's it's more efficient, right? <laughs> right. That's where I'm going with my and question. Well, sure. well, when she even said like, "Are you kidding me?" I, I know there was some foul language in there. Are you kidding me that you're not talking to each other in the same room? Yeah. It's like right. it's like everybody over the age of uh, <laughs> twenty. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what? You're right here. <laughs> yeah. And she turns the pad up, you know, to show her like the message, you know, as opposed to asking her the question or saying what they were trying to say. Just like turns the pad around with the word on it, the question. That's ridiculous. Where it's we're gonna have to get the uh, the kids of Woodley Junior High take over the world on our uh, 
on our Facebook page as well. Promote that work. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good stuff. You know, it's so important for you know kids, any any kid in general, whether they're you know have special needs or of any sort. Uh, music is such a great thing. It's such a key to um, I, for me. It took me all over the world. I've been to other countries. I've been overseas and stuff like that. Just just through music. So uh, it's a wonderful thing that he's doing that. Uh, I think that definitely gives me a lot more respect for him um, as a writer and a, someone who's reaching out in his community and doing good things for the world. So. I was, uh, I was uh, really really happy that uh, your subject line Herb was able to step in because yeah, I know the first part you are a musician right. and we're like I think I might be available to do this I might have band practice so I know you resonate with that yep certainly do yeah to me it's just it's really sad that those. Uh, comprehensive like social yeah. services and nonprofits. They're like the first ones that get hit. Yet they're yes. They they penetrate so deep into the culture. They, they really are on the ground doing the hard work. Um, and it's sad that they're like you know they're the first ones that get cut just due to kind of you know how some of these you know structures are are laid out. So even people that are doing legit the Lord's work, you know, it's so much harder when you know, everybody's struggling financially with uh, budget cuts and people will have to scale back their, you know, charitable contributions when, you know, they can't even pay their rent. So. All right. Yep. Yeah. And I know we're talking about creepy kids with this book, but it's like, well, yeah, quite a jump, right? <laughs> it's a huge jump from you are obsolete to the, the, uh, the high, you know, the, whatever the, what was it? What's it called again? The kids at Whitley Junior High. Whitley Junior High. Yeah. Can you show us that promotion thing? Yeah. Sorry, it's a little reverse there. No, it looks good on our end. Yep, you're good. Matches a shirt. <laughs> yeah, you sure? Yeah. <laughs> I want to download some songs, man. Uh, Gib, just let me know if uh, anybody has a poll at the Ogre. Um, they can put it in their poll, too, as well. So, okay. Um, that's something you can definitely throw in there. Awesome. For those dedicated folks. Gib got anything else he wants to share? Gib, anything else you want to throw on the yeah, we appreciate it, gentlemen. Oh, thank you. So, what is um, what is your guys's um, what is your guys's um, surprise about the book? Was there something that really kind of caught you off guard? Well, are we supposed to give away any spoilers? <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe provide a little bit of that. Maybe broaden it a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, trying to be yeah. Um. The artist and herb keeping me keeping me honest. I love it. Just fit fit your fit your vague part in the subject line, Herb. <laughs> hey, you know I can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I again. I thought that. Um, I didn't think that it was going to go the way that it did at the very end. Um, again, I. I was surprised that she didn't take more of a physical stand. Um, I think at, at certain certain points in time, uh, I would think that I would. I don't know because they're kids, though. Maybe we'd be, we'd be worried about you know legal repercussions. I don't know. I can't say that all right. Can't know. But but either way, again, I was a little bit surprised about that. Uh, the the ending did surprise me. Uh, I, I I kind of. So, again, the kind of the lead out and that it's kind of going out there and that she is going to do this. And, uh, you know, what was your, uh, what was your part, Rob? Um, 
I actually was surprised by, um, I'm probably going to mischaracterize what this is, but the the perspective of the writer, right? So um, the timeline was really unique for me. I was, I was expecting to be a little bit more linear and not like, um, oh, we need to actually go back to her childhood and kind of figure out how she's wired. So I really appreciated some of the uh, perspective of her as she kind of starts doing the confessional which i thought was pretty cool kind of like that she's writing it the whole time you know that she's typing it out you know and that's that those are the parts that you're reading yeah and again yeah so i almost felt like you know at some point it was like okay she's reflecting on what has happened and then you know a lot of it felt like okay this is live now like she's no longer like she's no longer writing this this is where she is right now for real and then it's like oh is that really the case so yeah at least provided a, a good um kept me engaged i think a lot absolutely yeah i liked it that um i mean we all say that kids are smart and we all like to say that our own kids are smart and that you know they're very sophisticated but it was like just like the end of the first book cad where you knew that they they set this whole thing in motion and it wasn't just adults that did it for them and they were like they're the ones who orchestrated it and it was just when that whole car like not to spoil anything but like if you if you read the first issue and the car drives by the clown car the, yes with like 50 kids in it like looking back i was like oh i'm into this man like what is going on in this island man let's, they just drove by mean mugged her you know exactly <laughs> I was yeah, so that was good. No, no, I know this is where you're No, no, I know this. That in you know, um, you know, again, you know, Cad. Uh, I thought I thought that was a bit of a surprise. Um, yeah, uh, Cadanude. I think is, or I, I know I'm probably butchering that name, but um, either way, I thought that his character was a surprise and his affiliation. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And the fact that they yeah. just were they're just going with it. They just all accept it and just go along with it as that it really is this means of efficiency and it really is the future and that one needs to sacrifice themselves. You know, I just, that whole concept of that, uh, I think that is very bizarre uh, that, you know, by a certain age, yeah, it's no good anymore. You know? Yeah, that was a bizarre. I, I I really really thought that was a fun um, fun idea. It kept me into it for sure. Yep, hundred percent. I'd say this is a pretty unique kind of setup. Got a little bit of a live feed while it's live in the store. I feel like a feel like a correspondence uh, <laughs> reporter here. And back to you, Rob. <laughs> and now to Rich for the weather. <laughs> it's raining. It's beautiful. Some of the some of the correspondents don't even hide it. They're like, okay, um, this is my script. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> here we are live. We'll yeah, do well, it live. The, the help you pay for, right? That's right. Shoot, they don't even need earpieces anymore. They got uh, earbuds in these days. <laughs> Those earpieces. Have you guys heard from Mark yet? I like it. Yeah, you got anything, Rich? I have not. I know he's uh, he's on the road. He is traveling I, I really to really to, uh, to set something else up for the next episode of the podcast. So he's kind of he's kind of off the grid right you now. You give a spoiler on that, or is that uh, top top secret? I can give a spoiler on it. Um, our next episode coming out. Uh, three of us. Uh, I, I put a preview up on our. Uh, 
Facebook, Facebook, Facebook page where we, we talk with the uh, comic book man Mike Zapsik and Ming Chen and uh, Mark is actually going to their <laughs> recording studio and we're going to have another episode with those guys coming up here pretty soon too. Oh, I thought you guys were going to do my, my life story. <laughs> Your life story? <laughs> I'll steal a line from Subject Line Herb. We love a good charity case. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I sent Mark uh, an email, I think, to your guys' uh, uh, Sister Heroes Home Base email, and it, I'm pretty sure it just says, um, sorry, I thought this was Comic Book Men, and that's it. <laughs> that's why we love you. So now we only have, or maybe we only have a few more questions. For you. Okay. We'll kind of Sorry about that. No, yeah. no, no it's man. Part of the game. It's what you do when you're live in person <laughs> and live. Yeah. Online. Yeah. You know those mixed yeah. feelings, right? Um, why forty? <laughs> Again, um, similar to what happened with Lila, we don't know. Um, a, I wanted it to be uh, unanswered, and B, it's even in the book. Uh, you know, Martina, the, the the main villain girl, kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, essentially, why not? And yeah, to, right. her, to her, it's just like 40s old, according to a 12-year-old. And <laughs> yeah. I really wanted it to be that arbitrary. There's there's an aspect of what's going on right now with our culture and society, and pretty much has always been the case, let's be honest, of, of, that, of that arbitrary sensibility. Uh, Kubrick said something once that was really... Uh, you know, telling to me when I was younger, I remember thinking about it, which he said, you know, the, the great fear doesn't come from this idea of this villain in the sky or the devil or God hates you or whatever. The, the great fear is indifference. That what if, like, it just doesn't matter? What right. if it's totally nihilistic or anarchic like that? That's much scarier. And you can see that in a lot of his films. I mean, one of the scariest moments of any Kubrick film is a red light. You know, it's Hal the computer. He's sounding completely yes. urbane and indifferent, and yes. it's not malicious or angry. It's just fiery. And that is so frightening. And it says so much in the film about our society, about the time that it came out, 1968, when there's so much cultural upheaval and everything going on, very similar to what's going on right now today, obviously. Sure. And, you know, I was thinking of that idea through a lot of you are obsolete. And so those bigger questions, why 40? I felt that the scariest answer was why not? And there is no answer, right? And it just is that way. And again, I played with it in that moment. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book of, of you know, while I was talking with her about it, Martina's just playing with the dead lady's face like a little kid was like, she just doesn't yeah, care. Right. It just doesn't matter. She just arbitrarily chose it. It could have been 38. It didn't matter. And I thought that that was the scariest answer of all, basically no answer. It's so interesting to me. And I've been telling a bunch of other people this. But um, one of the things that I've been doing is we've all been, uh, have uh, more time to binge on our old TV and movies and books and stuff right now, obviously. Um, I One of the things that I was doing was deep diving back into a lot of old horror and sci-fi, some that I had better seen before, some I hadn't. Um, so I was just going back to some old stuff and I was going through a lot of old Stephen King short stories. And one of them was, I said, gee, I should actually read Children of the Corn since I keep talking about it in these interviews. And um, there's a similar aspect in there that's not really in the movie, which is the adults um, are all, well, not even the adults, but the, the older people are killed off when they turn 19. And I just, I actually hit up a bunch of people like, 
ooh, COVID-19. But it was the same kind of thing where it was just like 19, like, and in that case, maybe because 18 when you're an adult or whatever, but um, you know, it's no different than Logan's run, which was, I think 21 in the book and 30 in the movie or maybe vice versa. Um, it's just, you know, it, it is rather arbitrary. And I just think that that is, uh, I think that's the scariest answer of all. It's just that's old to a 12 year old, 40. So like related to that, because, you know, we do have that driving force of self-preservation. What happens when these kids start? You know, it's actually, it, it, Stephen King answers that very well in the short story of Children's Corn, which I do actually recommend as much as the movie's not so great. Um, although it's got some fantastic scenes, of course. Uh, but uh, Linda Hamilton's always awesome. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, in, the, in, in the short story of Children of the Corn, there's an acceptance to it. And, um, you know, it, because in Children of the Corn, there's a religious connection that the children have. They are, the, the, they're using the Bible as a means of this, this is inevitable. This is what we do. This is what has to happen. It's, it's you know, the changing of the seasons. It's, you know, to everything, turn, turn, you know, whether it's a yeah. bird song or in the Bible or whatever. Ecclesiastes, or I think it is, or whatever it is. Um, it's just, that's part of life. And they're just putting a number to it rather than waiting you know, until you die of old age or whatever it is. And it's just, it's kind of a rite of passage. And that was actually something that was very important to me um, in You Are Obsolete. I think that Martina even, even though she's the leader of the children, so to speak, I think she will, she would gladly give herself up to be killed off at 40. For the cause. The kids and children of the corn, that was part of their life cycle is they die at 19. And that's one of the things that comes up in the short story. Um, and again, I think that that's more realistic, but also even uh, more scary too, is um, it's the idea of, um, it's, it's the idea of, you know, this is happening. And even the people who like Martina, who she's going to die at 40, she's okay with that because that's just part of the society that they've created, the rules of the game that they created. I wonder, it always plays that like existential question of would I want to know when I die right. or do I want to surprise when it happens so it almost it almost begs that question of would i live my life any differently when i know i have an obsolete expiration date right so it's like what i do kind of long-term short-term knowing that i know when i'm going to pass or right. if i really piss some people off in the past maybe a few, a few days early <laughs> well i think you know and this this came up too in some of the reviews and some of the comments that i've seen about the book because some people were a little bit confused Founded by the idea that um, that uh, you know some of the some of the parents or some of the adults in the book are you know okay with this that they're actually yeah. supporting it they're encouraging it that was another reason why in in the fourth installment I really like that there's again I'm trying to give too much away but there's a talent show yes. and it involves some things with with this app or whatnot and I'm showing that in the crowd some of the parents are cheering the kids yes. off yeah. and there's even other parts in the book where some of the adults are actually giving into this and are saying yeah. you know that they're proud of their children aren't the children so smart look what they've done and yeah they're so great and you know and and frankly we see this in you know obviously in 1984 the movie brazil which is a sort of version of 1984 that terry gilliam did where you have some of the parents are actually proud of their children for yeah. spying on them or proud of the children for turning them in and again just like what i said about the margaret atwood uh handmaid's tale connection um i think it's very similar where that's part of history is that you know whether it was Nazi Germany or 
you know, Soviet Russia or whatever it might be, like a big part of what was so scary about it was there were people who were giving into it. And there were people who Separation of family. Yes. Right, exactly. Yeah. And they were, they were, they were, that's what real totalitarianism is. That's yeah. what real, when it's, when it's a mental thing. I mean, one of the scariest elements that a lot of people tend to forget about for 1984 is a scene toward the end where uh, the, the bad guy, if you will, is telling you know, our hero Winston that, um, you know, it's making him see uh, five fingers when he's putting up four fingers. And when, you know, and he, he's basically beating Winston up and like, how many fingers do you see? And Winston says four. And how many fingers do you see four? Winston finally says, I see, okay, I see five because he's trying to get him to see five, but he still keeps hitting him because he doesn't want him to just say that he's seeing five. He wants him to really see five fingers. And so and finally he does it. So he's getting into your head and he's making you want to believe and see and feel. It's you're going to love Big Brother at the end. You're not just going to say that you love Big Brother. And I think that that's a really important part. Uh, the idea of totalitarianism, the idea of messing with people's brains and heads. It's the idea of, you know, when that day should come, hopefully not too soon, where there's, it's time for chips in our head. When Elon Musk or Silicon Valley or whatever is like, guess what? We're putting chips in our head. It will probably not be you have to. It'll probably be, well, you don't have to put a chip in your head. But you know what? You really might want to. And, you know, if you want this job, you might need it. And if you want yeah. to go and see this one thing, you might need it. You don't have to yeah. do it. We're not telling you have but to. But you, you, you have to. Yeah, it's, I mean, how many people do you know keep their Facebook page or keep other social media and they talk about how much they hate it? You know, that happens constantly. Yeah. You know, people talk about, oh, I hate social media, I hate Twitter, I hate Facebook, but they have Facebook, they have Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter. They feel like they have to do it. They feel like they need to do it for work. They feel like they need to do it for socializing, especially right now, in bed. the lockdown and whatnot. And so to me, it's very interesting that we have these very powerful institutions in our lives that we're all engaging with and, and utilizing and dealing with and people don't like them, but they feel socially nudged into it or professionally nudged into it. A lot of us don't want to have a cell phone, and you know, but we have to have a cell phone. I went to um, a bar with some friends last night, a really nice swank bar, and the way that you saw the, the, the menu to see the drinks was you had to download an app and you had to read yeah. it. Yeah. You know what? None of us did because we were sort of taking a break from it for a night. We didn't want to, we're out to be away from the screens. And we actually all just basically said like, do you, do you have whiskey? Do you have this? Do you have that? And, you know, that's how we did. We didn't want to look at our phones and see what the drinks were. We were sort of taking a break from that crap. So it's it's um, a, con- a complex situation. That's kind of how I wanted to play with it, and you were obsolete. So. It worked, because I, I was going to go back to my, uh, my question earlier, because um, that really plays in kind of like the isolation that, you know, young kids are having right now, like, especially mine, and how dependent upon technology they are. And I, I thought that the, not to spoil anything, but some of these kids don't even speak. Right. And they communicate through device. And it's so challenging nowadays to have a one-on-one conversation with your kids sometimes because all they want is to be plugged in. And once right. I read your book, like, and then we're, we're still like hanging out in the house. I'm like, give me the tablet. Uh, give me the Xbox <laughs> controller. Like, no. Well, you know, go. what's really scary about it. <laughs> Is, is is when you when you read into a lot of this information and again the interviews are out there and, and they're fine talking about it you see a lot of people in silicon valley they don't let their yep. kids use yeah. this equipment or their software devices steve jobs notoriously didn't really let his children use tablets and whatnot and some of the devices even though the past before a lot of that really became as proliferated as it is and people like sean parker and certain other people i mean there are people in silicon valley who helped to create a lot of these devices and software and they're now working together to create lobby groups to basically yeah. try to pull it back 
because they're yeah. the ones who are like um either a like we're sorry we screwed up or b like we shouldn't have done this like silicon valley itself is pushing back on a lot of this stuff and mm, you know a more wow. specific moment and you are obsolete that i'll never forget is there's a scene toward the beginning where a mother uh, her baby is crying in the baby carriage and she doesn't know mm. what her baby wants because it's a little baby who's just screaming and, and gurgling and whatever and she realizes uh, that the baby wants her tablet and it's like you know a yep. little like you know yep. nine month year old or whatever it is and i will say this you know we all have different experiences so i'm not blaming her or anything but my editor christina harrington actually said why are you putting that in like why is that scary like a lot of a lot of parents have to give their babies tablets or whatnot i'm like okay that's fine for you maybe uh, you're like no they don't I'm not to say that, <laughs> no no i actually not have to yet. tell her like that well that's weird for some people like some of us that's, that's why it's weird. scary it's because <laughs> it you're gonna so, do that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So, and, and you know what honestly i know some other people that probably say the same thing like why, why is that scary why is that weird like i'll go to coffee shops or i'll go to um, you know, not, not right now necessarily, but before the lockdown. And I would see like these like little kids who look like, you know, yeah, are in their baby carriage practically, or look like maybe they're three years old, little toddlers with their tablet and just, you know, nose to the screen yeah. in the coffee shop. And there's just a, a sense where it's like, wow, like read, a, you know, like read your children a book or, you know, yeah. why can't the kid be playing like with a puzzle or drawing or something like that? I don't know. So it's like, that all said, this has come up a lot too, and I do think it's important to say, especially since my next project is about a group of, of young adults with developmental disabilities. There obviously are really good things that come out of this, these tools and technology. I have gotten a little criticism for this, both with this project and some of the other sort of anti-tech type stuff I've done, where people say, hey, isn't it great that somebody, you know, who maybe wouldn't be able to talk can now communicate? And I, I've worked with a lot of different groups of people with disabilities, and I've seen that be the case it definitely is true too so for me it's a matter of a this is a sci-fi horror story so i wanted to kind of exaggerate it and sort of the hyperbole of it but b i just think that we need to keep asking these questions yes i think we need to investigate you know i have a cell phone we're on zoom or and facebook live right now i mean we're using the technology and that's kind of what's funny about it yeah um so but i just you know so there are obviously some good things to this uh, as well, it's just figuring out that line. Um, right. you the know, balance of it. Yeah, I mean, look, there are advantages to fast food. It's cheap, it allows people who maybe don't have a lot of money or don't have a lot of time to be able to feed their family, to be able to eat themselves and, and that kind of thing. But you don't want to have it all the time. And there are obviously a lot of problems with fast food as well. And, um, and you know, there are advantages to cigarettes even. It does help you think faster, be more creative and other things as well with that. So, but you know, you don't want to be, smoking all the time or in that case really at all but still so there's advantages there's disadvantages i just for me i want people to ask more questions yeah absolutely and it does scare me i've said this before also that it just seems like right now at least um and in the last you know couple of years as we've been asking more of these questions that there is sort of a contingent of people who kind of get mad at you about it you know there's there's an almost cultish religious sort of um vehemence about it and a, and a, and a, and a sort of ardent quality where it's like why are you asking these questions i'm like oh you're you're against progress and you're against like the future and you're against things moving forward yeah. and whatever it is and um you know it's like no 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 no. i just we need to ask questions about these things and what's going on with new media and new tech and and these blogs and these you know less accountability and clickbait and um how you know things like facebook are affecting our elections or how it's affecting our brains affecting our children so for me, a lot of this is about, I understand there's some good qualities to it as well. 
sure. But it's about asking those questions and trying to stay awake to it and not just immediately giving in. And so that when that day does come, probably within our lifetime where it starts becoming chips in the head, um, that we're not just like immediately giving into it. It's like, right. well, I guess that's part of life now. It's like, wait a second, let's hold off here. We're, we're putting what in our brain? So that's for me a lot of what this is about. And that might seem slippery slopish, might seem conspiracy theory-ish, but that's sort of what I'm talking about here. Like we do need to think about it. And that technology is being developed right now yeah. by people with billions of dollars and who have a lot of political power and who have done and are doing other things that are affecting our lives sometimes in very deleterious ways and really destructive ways. So it's not, you know, it's not uh, uh, the skies falling or, or, you know, boy crawl, called, uh, you know, crying wolf here. It's, there are people who are trying very hard to make this happen. Yep. So yep. let's just acknowledge that, talk about it. And hey, if we can turn it into a scary, weird sci-fi horror story in a comic book, it's your obsolete. <laughs> so boom. <laughs> so real quick. So if we can get into your head for a second. Sure. Um, what, are there anything, and respecting the fact that we're live on Facebook and you're, you're <laughs> promoting this work, is there anything, any way that you wrote yourself into this story? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a journalist myself. A lot of my friends are journalists. Um, I've written about, read about, and talked with a lot of people about technology through much of my life and career, actually. Um, I was asking questions like this and talking about this since the early 2000s. Um, and really, even before that, I mean, I, I was reading George Orwell and Aldous Huxley and, and that kind of thing, even when I was in junior high school, 11, 12 years old. One of the reasons why I've read them over and over again, because when I was very young, I was reading it really just for the writing and the story. As I got older, I realized how prescient a lot of it was and, and how much it was talking about a lot of what was going on in our society then and how resonant it is now. Um, I mean, I probably have read Brave New World and, and 1984 and other books like that, Lord of the Flies, and even Gulliver's Travels, which I would throw in there. A lot of H.G. Wells, Kafka, Act, uh, obviously, Tolkien, Dick, Ellen Ellison, Ray Bradbury, of course. I mean, I've probably read Fahrenheit 451 about 15 times. Right. Um, and uh, so I've always been very interested in this. Uh, but, you know, in the early 2000s, when I first started asking questions, and when I had friends that were first starting to get into Facebook when it first started coming out in 2004, 2005, yeah, there was definitely a little bit of blowback and pushback there because that was before people were saying like, like now a lot of people know and realize that, you know, there's a lot of problems with Zuckerberg and there are a lot of problems with Facebook and a lot of problems with the social media. But in the early days, it was really just like, let's just let it happen. Like, this is great. This is amazing. We can all be like, it was just the good stuff. Nobody will miss you. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you, you really got a lot of criticism or you were thought you were crazy or something if you were even asking questions. And if anybody is interested in this, um, a lot of what, I, what I'm taking from this comes from a guy named Nicholas Carr, C-A-R-R. -R. He wrote The Gallows, and he wrote a very famous piece, I think, for The Atlantic called Is Google Making Us Dumb? He was one of the first people to really start talking about how every time you're looking something up on Google, you're sort of lowering your, your brain level a little bit because part of, you know, it's like going to the gym. you got to work out your brain, and you have to try to remember a word on your own or remember a fact on your own if you're always looking at your phone for it you're going to get kind of lazy right in, you know, from his point of view and from the research he did and whatnot, he found that that does affect your brain. Um, but Nicholas Carr has written a lot of great articles and a lot of great books. And he was Pulitzer Prize nominated, talking, talking about a lot of what we're discussing. And, you know, he even got a lot of criticism or sort of ignored in the early days when he first started because he's one of the first people to really take it seriously like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've, all this is to say, I've been very interested in investigating tech. I wrote for a tech website for about a year and a half. I 
when I was working on my nerd book, Nerding Out, which came out in China. I interviewed a lot of people in Silicon Valley. I interviewed a lot of people in the tech community. I interviewed Nicholas Carr and a lot of other people writing about and talking about technology. I interviewed different neurologists, psychologists. Uh, even when I was working on the Nickelodeon book, I learned a lot about where cable television came from and our connections to screens, how TV programming screens affects children, which is information that I was getting a lot from, from the people who put Nickelodeon together, obviously. So, you know, I've written pieces for Wired. So I'm very interested in all this. So a lot of that went into You Are Obsolete. And I hope that that came through as far as feeling genuine, it's feeling like I kind of know Absolutely. what I'm talking about, that I wasn't just, it wasn't just me spat, spattering out, you know, conspiracy theories or things that I read on some blog, but really it's a big part of my life is talking about, thinking about, reading about technology and how this is all affecting us in media and so forth. So in that way, there was a lot of me in there, I guess you can say. Sure. Okay, yeah. So one of the other questions we um, want to ask folks that we interview, just so that you know, we and whoever's listening can kind of get to know who we're talking to a little bit better. Is there anything maybe unique to you that maybe you haven't already shared that would just be good to know about you as a creative, complex, spiritual, emotional, physical human being? <laughs> wow. You know, is there anything unique that we need to know about you that would, you know, maybe draw some people to you? Gosh, um, we, we like talked, nuance. That would be yeah, that no, would be therapy, we, therapy, Rob. There, therapy, <laughs> Rob. We we've talked for such a long time, and and obviously I, I am a talker, so um, I think I got most of it out there. I mean, um, I, you know, I'd like to think that I have a very eclectic perspective. One of my big issues with a lot of people in the creative and media um, and entertainment communities. Um, is that it just seems like so many people are centralized in Los Angeles and New York City. Mm -hmm. um, there's even a lot of people who um, kind of make fun of the flyover states. I mean, I have a lot of friends even, for me, why'd you move to Dayton? Why are you in Ohio? Or, you know, I've lived in other places in Kansas and Missouri and in Iowa and such. And I, I would get a lot of shit from people who, you know, thought it was funny or weird or even said, you're gonna ruin your career. How can you work out there? Everything is in LA and New York City. And for me, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I've moved around a lot. Much of it is just I have wanderlust and I can't help myself. I don't like staying in the same place for too long. Um, but a lot of it is I just realized that we, you know, there's all this discussion about, you know, diversity and, and opening up to other stories and other people and such. And, and it's got to it's got to be throughout the country and throughout the world. I feel bad I haven't been to other countries, really. I've been to Canada, Mexico and Israel. Um, but Israel was the first, right? So it was a little bit cloistered, obviously, in Canada. Mexico was just because, you know, I, I would go up there, go to Mexico when I was, you know, living in Los Angeles, San Diego area or whatnot. But, but I've never been to Europe and I've never been to, um, you know, any, any countries in, in you know, in, in Asia or Africa or South America or Central America. I'd love to see as many people and as many stories and as many places I can eat different food and experience different experiences. But what I have done is lived all over the country traveled all over the country, really have gotten invested in these different communities wherever I go. I'm not just going there for a weekend. I live there for a few years. I get involved in local media. I, I talk with local restaurant owners. I talk with local, you know, bartenders and so forth. I love becoming a part of a community wherever I live. That's awesome. And I think that that's very important, not only as a person, but as a writer, as a creative, as a media person, so that I know more of what's going on in the world aside from just Los Angeles or New York City. And I do think it's a shame that there is this idea still to this day that you have to be in New York City or you have to be in LA yeah. if you want to work in film, television, or even for the most part, journalism, especially since there's 
so little local journalism in other parts of the country now. Most newspapers, even local newspapers, um, throughout the Midwest are owned by these larger companies, and a lot of the writers live in other places, and they're writing about those communities. They don't even live there. And so I guess what's maybe a little bit more unique than I know, I'm obviously not the only one who's done this or lived this way, but that it just seems like the majority, the vast majority of people who are writing books, who are making movies and TV, who are writing articles, especially for national publications, live in these two places that are frankly good or bad, up or down, rich or poor, whatever, fairly different than the rest of the country. Yeah, I mean, they're their own microphone. They're their own microcosm. They're their own little world, and that's great. And I, I lived in LA for 10 years, and I lived in New York City three different times, and I still have a lot of friends and family there. I obviously have to go to both places a lot for work. That's where you know, these, these media and entertainment hubs are. I need to do it. Um, so that's fine, but um, I, I just feel that it's important for me to live in these different places, to really get involved in the community, to see what's going on, and hopefully that's had an impact on my work on my books, on my stories and articles and, and theater shows. But when I did, I did a theater project with a group of young girls um, where we did a girl version of uh, Lord of the Flies. And it was actually based on the stories and experiences oh, wow. and personalities nice. of the young girls. They basically rewrote it as their own story. Now, not only was it cool to do that because it was their own stories and it was girls doing Lord of the Flies, but also I was in Lawrence, Kansas. So, you know, it was in a place like you normally would think of something like that being done in, you know, New York City, say, or something like that. But no, it was done in Kansas. And so that gave it a little bit of its own little spin and made it a little bit more singular than it would have been if it were in New York City or Montana or Seattle or Los Angeles or England or wherever. So um, I'd like to think one unique thing that I bring to my work is that um, I've traveled so much. I've lived in all these different places. I've really gotten to know so many different people in so many different places around the country. I mean, even doing this right now is when people ask, why are you in Dayton, Ohio? It's so that I can do things like this and talk to you guys and meet you guys and be in the store and have this conversation that I would have never had if I were still in Los Angeles or still in New York City. I would be living a very New York City life or a very, you know, LA life. Um, and it would be quite different than where I, I am here. And I just, I think that's very important. And I'm glad that each little town has its own filmmakers and writers. I mean, you know, when I'm in Dayton, I'm 20 minutes from where Dave Chappelle is doing his shows right now as we speak. Right, right. And, you know, 846 and some of the other things that he's been doing and it's going to keep doing. I mean, that's a fascinating piece of art and media. And he's doing that in little, you know, Yellow Springs, you know, Ohio. He's not doing that in Los Angeles. He's not doing that in New York. He's not in Seattle or Portland. Um, and, you know, I, everywhere I've gone, I've met people who are Academy Award winning filmmakers comic book creators and writers and musicians and stuff. But there are people who live outside of LA and New York City um, and uh, you know they bring a little bit of that to them too. I'm sure a lot of what Chappelle's doing right now and certainly he talks about it in 846 even is based on his experience being in Dayton and Yellow Springs which is going to be different than if he had lived in New York City or LA his whole life. Yeah. So I think that's important. Well I think um, do you Herb uh, you got anything else before we wrap it? Uh, well, I just want to say thanks so much for doing this. Uh, you know, you talk Thank about you. going around and doing all this, these interviews and stuff like that. Um, I think that really shows uh, dedication and who who you're trying to reach. And uh, we thank you so much. And I'm glad I got to be a part of this. So yeah, it's been a great time. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, dude, I was uh, I really, really, really enjoyed meeting you, man. And uh, I'm glad that your talents touched the comic industry. Oh, and, man, uh, and I really do seriously. Under here. And I really, really, <laughs> I really, really hope to see some 
some more in the in the future dude it was it was a pleasure and i appreciate you taking the time and answering a lot of our questions man and uh it was it was a pleasure we really hope that and none of your predictions on this stuff come true (laughs) absolutely unfortunately (laughs) many of them already have (laughs) right between the fifth issue coming out and then the lockdown before the trade there are full panels that probably would need to be taken out yes (laughs) you're exactly right we were talking about happening now so unfortunately i did turn out to be right more ways than one but oh well um (laughs) the last thing i will say is uh, you strike me as somebody who is the phrase that comes to mind is very well read Um, right um and also kind of social media obviously uh, my full-time job is a psychotherapist so i I'm really concerned about how things influence folks. So I think social media and how that affects development, how that affects how we see things and experience things has always been kind of interesting to me since it's been relevant. So I really appreciate kind of your perspective on that and what you bring to it, as well as, you know, you that complex person living and breathing and interacting with the communities that you've all been a part of. And I'm glad you could be part of our uh, Heroes Home Base podcast community and the Laughing Ogre community and the Columbus, Ohio community. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, so yeah, so you are obsolete. So the trade now available. And again, laugh, the Laughing Ogre, Ohio. Laughed. Laughed. No, we're not the. Get rid of the V. <laughs> Laughing Ogre, Ohio at Gmail. Um, if you want to get a signed copy of that. Um, all right. I think we're. Anything else, fellas? I'm good. We appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, Matt. We'll send you a bill. Reporting live. There you guys have it. Their interview with Matthew Clickstein. I thought you guys did a really great job. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely different for sure. (laughs) Um, I, so I kind of said this towards the end. I could tell he was very well read. He was very passionate about the literature that he has consumed that I think informs kind of, uh, his orientation to writing, um, definitely a deeper conversation than I some of our other interviews. Yeah. So he was a, he was a, a lot of fun to sit down and chat with. Um, and again, I just want to shout out Gib, uh, do an amazing job, took care. I got the backroom tour of the store. And Matthew said, you know, even if, you know, not a lot of people show up, you know, this has been one of the top uh, comic book stores in terms of on the front end, in terms of communication, setting things up. He absolutely loved the review that Laughing Over did for the book. He said, as a writer, I'm jealous of the reviews. So nice. Um, so once again, Gib Bickle and the Laughing Ogre, um, top notch professional. Yeah, it was, it was actually really, really cool to kind of be a part of that kind of culture at the store. Uh, in a different way bravo bravo all right so uh that's pretty much going to wrap it for this episode we will get back to uh finishing up our dc versus marvel um review on our next episode and we'll get back to the who would win segment so uh hope you really enjoyed it i highly recommend like i said before go get this book it's it's really good you will not regret it so until next time this is rich this is mark this is rob Uh, Once again, guys, if you want to like and subscribe to us on your social media platform and your podcasting platform of choice, really appreciate you guys listening. Shoot us a comment. Um, To Rich's point, check out this book. Um, It's not like a typical book, and we'd love to hear your comments and keep the conversation going. So 
this is something that you know we can talk about over uh, a few episodes so and again a shout out to subject line herb and uh, mark you were missed Once again, guys, really appreciate you listening and supporting this RMR production.